So I bet you didn't see this coming. Welcome, it's Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Bottom of this hour, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan's going to be joining me about some of the stuff happening in the state legislature. I bet you didn't see this coming. For No, I'm not talking about the debate last night. No, 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 no. No, Gallup is out with its latest job numbers for the first time in his presidency. More people support President Trump than oppose. I'm not making that up. Uh, This is actually pretty significant. Uh, Donald Trump's job approval has moved into positive territory for the first time in his presidency, with 49% of Americans approving of his performance, 48% of Americans disapproving of his performance. It is the president's best approval on the Gallup poll in his presidency. In addition, Gallup has seen an uptick in Americans identifying as Republicans, jumping to 32% from 28%. Democrats were just 28% of respondents. Now, all of this comes because of impeachment and the Democratic field as the Democrats look set to embrace Bernie Sanders. And last night, by God, Bernie Sanders cruising to uh, the nomination of the Democratic Party with the help of Elizabeth Warren. This was very, very strategically interesting to me last night. Uh, The reason being is because Elizabeth Warren uh, decided to go after uh, Mike Bloomberg in a way that none of the other candidates would. Now they were they were all savage to uh, to to Mike Bloomberg. They were all of them out to get Mike Bloomberg, but none of them were as nasty to Bloomberg as Elizabeth Warren, who just uh, lit him on fire. It is very notable that Elizabeth Warren went off every single win after every candidate on the stage, including Amy Klobuchar. And she didn't go after Bernie Sanders. She avoided him. But we must begin uh, with the two pieces of audio that are reverberating around the nation as we wake up this morning. Uh, This from Elizabeth Warren. Uh, It it just just striking audio from her as she goes after Mike Bloomberg. Oh, does the audio? Yes. Donald Trump for another four years. And we can't stand that. So I'd I'd like to talk about who we're running against. A billionaire who calls women fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. And no, I'm not talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about Mayor Bloomberg. Oh, that's how she began. But it wasn't just that one. Uh, she took it to a whole new level uh, with her savagery against Bloomberg. Listen, I mean, this is this is really important. This is Elizabeth Warren annihilating uh, Donald, uh, Mike Bloomberg. It's when his campaign absolutely imploded. I hope you heard what his defense was. I've been nice to some women. <laughs> that just doesn't cut it. The mayor has to stand on his record. And what we need to know is exactly what's lurking out there. He has gotten some number of women, dozens, who knows, to sign non-disclosure agreements, both for sexual harassment and for gender discrimination in the workplace. So, Mr. Mayor, are you willing to release all of those women from those non-disclosure agreements so we can hear their side of the story? A very few non-disclosure agreements. Uh, how many? Is Let me that? finish. 
How many is there? None of them accused me of doing anything other than maybe they didn't like the joke I told. And let me just put, oh. there's a be agreements between two parties that wanted to keep it quiet, and that's up to them. They signed those agreements, so, and we'll live with it. So wait, when you say it is up to, I just want to be clear. Some is how many? And, and, when you, and when you say they signed them and they wanted them, if they wish now to speak out and tell their side of the story about what it is they allege, that's now okay with you? You're releasing them on television tonight? Senator, no. Is that right? Oh, <laughs> he doesn't look comfortable. Senator, the company and somebody else, in this case, a man or a woman, or could be more than that, they decided when they made an agreement that they wanted to keep it quiet for everybody's no. interest. They signed the agreements, and that's what we're going to live I, with. I'm sorry. No, the question is, are I the women bound by being muzzled by you? And you could release them from that immediately. Because understand, this is not just a question of the mayor's character. This is also a question about electability. We are not going to beat Donald Trump with a man who has who knows how many non-disclosure agreements and the drip, drip, drip of stories of women saying they have been harassed okay. and discriminated against. Oh, boom. Uh, she, <laughs> she, she was having none of it. None of it. Uh, she was she was not happy at all. Uh, she went on uh, TV afterwards in the post-debate chat. So what happens from here? Well, I hope that Michael Bloomberg decides to live by what he says. He just wants to see the Democrats beat Donald Trump. So that's great. Mike Bloomberg, drop out of the race. Uh, keep putting your money in to help Democrats beat Donald Trump and just take your ego out of this. Did you expect him to do differently tonight or better than he did? Well, what shocks me is he seems so unprepared for the question about the non-disclosure agreements. I mean, think about what that says about Mike Bloomberg, that all these years he has been sued evidently multiple times for discrimination against women and for harassing women. The details, we don't know, because each time it happens, he puts a chunk of money on the table and then forces the woman to agree to wear a muzzle for the rest of her life over this issue. He walked into this debate thinking nobody was going to ask him about that. Listen, this is, this is serious. We're about to pick a nominee for president. Oh, man, it, it actually was pretty brutal. Over to you, to my dear friend, Gloria Borger. Gloria, what mattered most? Well, I think Bloomberg's best moments were probably when he was quiet. I, he, he did. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. Yes. Uh, it, it was a brutal, brutal night for Mike Bloomberg. Uh, he, he was, man, I mean, it was, it was y'all. Okay. So Bloomberg can spend a billion, two billion, five billion, ten billion dollars on this. He can buy up endorsements. You know, uh, for for those of you listening here in Georgia and elsewhere, Stacey Abrams, a former gubernatorial candidate here in Georgia, went on the View to defend Mike Bloomberg. Uh, said regardless of stop and frisk and, and spending money, he has the right to. It, it's his money. We know where it came from. He can run. Uh, the problem is that. Um, Abrams got 
$5 million from Bloomberg to her uh, voter accountability project and then gave him a prime speaking slot. Now, the political director of that uh, voter, what, what's I forget the name of it now, her voter group actually called Mike Bloomberg a terrorist on social media and then had to delete the tweet. Bloomberg can buy up a lot of support. He can buy up people saying nice things about him, but he can't buy people voting for him. Now, he can buy up enough people saying enough nice things about him. Uh, for example, he had a terrible night on stage last night, but he had three congressional endorsements today. But there's a problem for Bloomberg here, and I've got a lot more debate audio. We got a ton of audio this morning. I don't normally have this much audio, but I want to walk you through all this. But you've got opposition research now coming on Bloomberg. You've got the debate last night. He's he's going to be on the South Carolina debate stage. He can't bail on the next debate. He can't bail on the next debate because it will make him look like he's a chicken at that point, and then that that'll be bad for him. So he's got he's not on the ballot in Nevada, even though he went to the debate. He's not on the the ballot in South Carolina, even though he'll have to be in that debate look like a chicken he is on the ballot in the super tuesday states and right now he and bernie sanders are tied in florida and sanders is actually ahead in california despite the fact that bloomberg has more staff and has spent more money than all the other candidates combined let me say that again so you understand this in california mike in in california has more delegates to the democratic convention than all the other states california is going to be huge And Mike Bloomberg has spent more money and has more staff in the state than all the other candidates combined. And he's losing to Bernie Sanders in the polls. It's not good. Because all the Democrats, remember, all the Democratic primaries are proportional. There are no winner-take-all states. And so all Sanders has to do is keep winning some of the big ones. And keeping it close in the others, and he keeps racking up delegates, racking up delegates, racking up delegates. And now, because Bloomberg looks like a paper tiger on stage, you, you don't have an incentive for any of the other candidates to drop out. Uh, a super, super PACs have sprung up to help Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren. I saw somebody on uh, Twitter yesterday, and Logan Dobson, or, or one of, the, one of the, the smart guys on Twitter who gets politics, saying essentially that um, you, a super PAC can't get you to climb up a mountain if you got broken legs. But it can give you enough oxygen uh, to keep you from dying. And that's essentially what the Super PAC is going to do for Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar. They, they can't really climb the mountain anymore to get the nomination. But they can stay on the mountain and block people behind them from going past them uh, because the Super PACs will sustain them. Uh, Joe Biden looks like he's going to do well in Nevada. It looks like he's going to do well in South Carolina. That gives Joe Biden an incentive to stay in the race. Uh, Buttigieg has no incentive to get out of the race. He's doing well. None of them want to cede the field to Bloomberg. Sanders, of course, leads the pack. This is 2016 for the Democrats. This is 2016 all over again, except in this case, instead of having a bunch of Republicans leveraging Donald Trump to stop Ted Cruz and accidentally getting Donald Trump the nomination, you got a bunch of people leveraging Bernie Sanders now unintentionally to stop Bloomberg, and that's going to give Sanders the nomination. Now, you can say if you're a Democrat, well, look how it worked out for Donald Trump in 2016, except there's a problem. The Gallup polls this this morning, as Bernie Sanders goes up in the polls, Donald Trump's favorability goes up in the polls. That's not a good sign for the Democrats at all. Uh, Deeply problematic for the Democrats uh, to do that. Now, uh, let's go to the phones. Uh, I'm going to go start early. Uh, Pete in Massachusetts, of all places, welcome. Hello, Eric. Nice to talk to you. It's been, it's been many, many years since the old blog conventions and so forth. Yeah, what's going on? Uh, well, 
I want, wanted to make two comments concerning the debates last night. First, my wife, who is a very strong Trump supporter, uh, watched a little bit of that debate and was very fired up by what uh, was said by Warren, which she, Warren doesn't please her very often, but he pleased her there. And if that happened with my Trump supporting wife, it's going to happen. To, it's going to resonate with a lot of women. But I think the important thing, because of the Bloomberg money, is how he did in this debate is less important than how he'll do in the next one, because people all know people now are. Even those who don't follow politics hear, heard about the train wreck. So they're going to watch the next one. That's true. If he recovers in the next one and is credible and is able to sound credible because he's made, he made some decent points, especially about communism and capitalism. And those are the things that are going to hurt the Democrats more than anything else. If he makes those points again in the next debate, there's going to be even more trouble for the Democrats. But that's really what... It's the next debate where everyone's going to be watching because people love to see a train wreck that we're going to find yeah. out if Bloomberg has legs. Uh, you know, Pete, you make a great point, and thanks very much for the phone call. I, I, I appreciate it. Call, calling from Massachusetts. You make a great point, and let me, before I go to commercial break, I want to play this clip. Where is it? I, I, I had a bookmark. We've got so many clips this morning. Um, da, 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 da. Yes, uh, yes, th- this. You, you got to listen to this. This is the, the clip that Pete made about communism. And now, uh, this may help Bloomberg uh, remember, what is the goal? This is a an old James Carville, Paul Begala piece of advice, believe it or not. The goal is to win the election. And by election, that's the general election, not the primaries. Now, you can't do stuff to cause cause you to win the primaries that costs you the general election. That's not smart. You, you want to actually win the election. So you got to figure out how can I get win the general election and navigate through the primary. Uh, the, the, the reference that Pete uh, from Massachusetts is making about Bloomberg and communism and socialism is on point, except... Listen to the reaction to the Democrats when he makes it. What what Senator Sanders is proposing? Absolutely not. I can't think of a ways that would make it easier for Donald Trump to get reelected than listening to this conversation. (laughs) It's ridiculous. We're not going to throw out capitalism. We tried that. Other countries tried that. It was called communism, and it just didn't work. So, so let me make a proposal that will work. The crowd booed. It wasn't just Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. The crowd booed. He's got to get through a Democratic primary where they're hostile to capitalism. That'll work great in a general election, but he's got to get through the primary first. And the primary runs through four states that he's not on the ballot while Bernie Sanders continues to do well. Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada. Uh, Then you get to Super Tuesday. We'll get into into Super Tuesday. I got plenty of audio when we come back. It, It is. Pete's right. That stuff will be good on the campaign trail as a as a Democrat that a lot of people who hate Trump can 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 go to. But it's not good in the primary when you have all the Democrats piling on Mike Bloomberg. Why? Because it prevents Bloomberg from ever being able to get to Bernie Sanders while all the other candidates are going after Bloomberg. He's got to deal with them to get to the end. 
to get to Bernie Sanders, and he can't. This allows Bernie to keep racking up the delegates on the way to their convention in Milwaukee. And, you know, Charlie and I, we were debating whether or not we were going to go to the Democratic. I'm starting to think we may need to go to the Democratic convention and take bulletproof vests and gas masks just to be on the safe side. But but go. Uh, This is going to be a spectacle. I'm I'm still trying to figure out what we call last night slaughter in Vegas. I mean, Pocahontas went on the warpath. I thought Elizabeth Warren was going to scalp him right then and there uh, with all the questions. I mean, the jokes write themselves. Come on. You can imagine the headline writers. You've got a debate in Las Vegas. The headline writers were dying to be witty. Snake eyes for Bloomberg. Bloomberg gambles and loses in Vegas. Uh <laughs> Write themselves. Oh, it was not a good night for Bloomberg. Now, here's the thing: it, it is it is the first debate, and it, he he could rebound, but it it was not good for him. It just wasn't good for him. And it, the press reaction. We'll get into the press reaction. And a reminder: at the bottom of this hour, we're going to shift gears dramatically to Georgia. Jeff Duncan's going to join us about stuff that's happening in the legislature. And then we'll get back into some of the debate coverage as well. I just I gotta I gotta play you some of the some of the debate reaction. Um, poor old Van Jones. Uh, <laughs> I should say poor old Van Jones. Poor old Bloomberg. Uh, this this is the Van Jones reaction. This was a disaster uh, for Bloomberg. Uh, Blo- Bloomberg went in as the Titanic, <laughs> billion dollar machine. Titanic. Titanic meet iceberg. Elizabeth Warren. She <laughs> took him to task in a way that I've never seen in a debate. She, she, took, she, she, she took it over. She prosecuted him. But the worst part about it is for me, a lot of African-Americans are placing great hope in Bloomberg. Despite the, the stop and frisk and all that sort of stuff, you're seeing people trying to move over there. And he just wasn't ready. He was tone deaf on issue after issue. And the reason why, he's not been in those living rooms. He hasn't been doing those town halls. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know. Turbo, attacking people for, oh, I have too much money for turbo, turbo tax? This is a great answer? A lot of people watching use TurboTax. Mm-hmm. Uh, his answer on women was terrible. He got completely destroyed on the NDA question. His answer on stop and frisk was as bad as it could possibly be. Uh, and then he basically lied on his answer when it came to, uh, to redlining. He, on every major thing that people who are looking for a champion just wanted to see some contrition and some professionalism, he let people down tonight and he's got to go back to the woodshed and get it from his team and come back better next time he's gonna have to and that's a point that that pete raised in his phone call pete from massachusetts that he's got a chance to bounce back in the south carolina debate and certainly he'll make some improvement i mean he can go hire a debate coach he's got unlimited money He he can go hire a debate coach but let me read you this. This is from um, the, the one of the campaign reporters, uh, Michelle uh, Yee Lee, at the Washington Post. Several donors and fundraisers who were on the Biden-Bloomberg fence are texting me about their disappointment with Bloomberg last night. One said when asked about Bloomberg, an unmitigated disaster. Bloomberg isn't the answer, that's for sure. Now, your immediate reaction can be, well, yeah, but Bloomberg doesn't need the money. That's true, but Bloomberg needs the support behind the scenes. He needs these people to open doors for him because... Because as much as Bloomberg can fund his own race, remember, the small dollar donors are the voters. They're the hardcore voters. And he doesn't have those people right now. And he's trying to get those people. He's trying to get the influence leaders within the Democratic Party to make it easier for him to get those people. And right now, a lot of the people who are going to get on board 
and connect Bloomberg with those people and open doors for Bloomberg that Bloomberg can't open with his money, they're not going to right now. Are, are there doors that Bloomberg can't open with his money? Yes. Mike Bloomberg can buy his way to the top of the polls, but that doesn't mean he can actually buy the vote. There are a lot of people who love his money and will say glowing things about him and they will stab him in the back in the ballot box. When we come back, shifting gears, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan joins us. It is Eric Erickson here, 35 after the hour. The phone number, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. There is a situation here in Georgia last year. You, Regardless of where you live in the state, you may be familiar with Must Ministries. Must Ministries uh, is a, a ministry headquartered out of Atlanta that provides meals to needy children. Uh, and, and literally, it is people in their homes and offices making sandwiches for kids during the summer when they don't have a school lunch program. And these these meals are dropped off for uh, people in need. And it's a huge ministry. I know people who their entire office gets in on this. Well, uh, health inspectors stepped in last year and shut down the ministry because they weren't making the sandwiches in kitchens that had been certified for catering. I mean, it was people doing them in their houses and stuff. Uh, making the meals to feed the homeless, and, and the government stepped in and shut down the program as a result, and there's legislation pending in the legislature to try to fix this, to get people back involved. Um, one of the people supportive of this that I want to talk to about this and a bunch of other stuff is the Lieutenant Governor, Jeff Duncan. Good morning to you. Good morning, Eric. How are you? I'm great. Listen, thank you. I, I know you're one of the people who's who's been involved in trying to fix this issue with Must Ministries. I, I, I couldn't believe it when that happened last year, and, and thankful to you guys for stepping up to, to correct this. Yeah, uh, excited about Senate Bill 345 being on the floor today, and Senator Kay Kirkpatrick from Cobb County has done a, done a really, really good job of getting this through the system, and, and you know, I, I was able to hear you for a couple of seconds before I before you, you looped me in, so I got to hear you walk your, your, your listeners through this, but uh, this is what I think an overwhelming majority of Georgians expect their legislature to do, is is to kind of look through the lens of, of, of what somebody, a normal person in a community would be looking through, to take rules and regs out of the way of, of people just being able to help other people. You know, I often talk about how important what I like to call the four C's are, churches, charities, corporations, and citizens. And, and this must ministries and others uh, around the state, you know, like blessings in a backpack and other things out there, is really the culmination of those four C's coming together to help your neighbor. And uh, this is a good opportunity for us to put the right foot forward today. And and really excited about this being something we get to be a part of on the Senate floor today. Well, you know, I, I got to say, I was I was shocked last year when I started talking about this issue on the radio as it happened that, that there were a number of people who reached out and said, "Oh my my goodness!" Despite a a 25-year track record of nothing ever happening, that someone could possibly uh, contaminate a sandwich and get someone sick. Therefore, we must have the government step in. And I just thought, we have gotten so dependent on charity, we're, we're, or on government, we're seeing nonprofits and churches kind of give up on, on trying to help communities, making government get involved, and then the government makes it even more cost-inefficient for nonprofits to get involved. Yeah, you know, so, and I said this, you know, all on the campaign trail, and, and it's been a big part of kind of my life in the last seven years being in office. But, uh, you know, the four C's, these churches, charities, corporations, and citizens, show up to issues in and around poverty and other challenges in our communities 
with tools and resources that a government program, even on its best day, would never have. Things like volunteerism, things like innovation, but probably most important, exit strategy. You know, even a government program, when it's operating on all cylinders and shows up and everything goes perfect on a particular day, they can only stabilize somebody in and around these issues around poverty. But when the four C's show up, they have the opportunity to transition and work with and partner with a community to be able to help these people achieve so much more uh, than than that, that current situation. Well, look, thank you again. I know the other issue uh, that you care about deeply and are working on is, is Senate Bill 335 uh, by Matt Brass from Noonan on uh, foster kids uh, giving free admission to state parks and historic sites, which I, I'm kind of surprised we weren't doing that already. Well, you know, Senator Matt Brass has done a great job working with us on this, and he's, he's got a heart, uh, you know, a passion for, for really trying to, to improve uh, our foster care system here in the state. I know that our governor... Governor Kemp has made this a huge priority also, and he's got a particular uh, uh, piece of legislation moving through, too. And, and look, this is just one of these things. You know, I, I come at this from a faith angle. Uh, I'm called to, to, to make a difference in these kids' lives. Um, I know that uh, as we continue to go forward, uh, I probably said it w- with you before, you know, we, we, we really are excited to be the number one place to do business in. Uh, I want to be the number one place to be a foster kid in. And, and this is one of these steps that allows us to to just make that uh, make that period of time for these foster kids a little bit better and have an opportunity to bring a few more smiles to their face along the way. Now, we've talked about this in, in several conversations, just the, the rates of high school graduation, literacy, and, and things like that uh, among foster kids. And I know the governor has a rather comprehensive proposal on adoption and foster care. And I, I've heard some people express skepticism that maybe it can get through the Senate. It, it can't get through the House. Do you, do you have any sense of, of where all the foster care reform is headed? Yeah, I certainly feel a ton of momentum here in the Senate. Uh, I know that, uh, you know, we, we, we as, as, as a chamber uh, have a huge passion for foster and, and adoption reform in a meaningful, substantive way. Uh, I, I certainly know the governor does. And, and look, I, I spent time in the House, and certainly, you know, Burt Reeves, I believe he's carrying uh, the, the adoption of foster care reform bill over in the House, and he's done a tremendous job over the years carrying this. Look, um, not, only, um, not only can we, should we, but we will do better in this state of caring for those kids. And look, it, it, it's, it's comprehensive. It doesn't need to be an urging resolution that just says, hey, we should do better. There are things that we can do mechanically that – you know, around respite and, uh, you know, around education and, and around opportunity. And, and, you know, when we talk about aging out, you know, you, you've heard me share these statistics before, but 97% of the 700 kids a year that age out of our foster care system end up in chronic poverty. 71% of the girls end up pregnant within the first year. 11%, only 11% have a GED or a high school diploma. Those are, those are statistics that in any uh, perspective are just awful we can do better now i I have saved the most painful for last (laughs) let's talk about the budget uh how's that coming (laughs) so look you know the the, the budget is a process it's not supposed to be you know when the founding fathers set up this whole process it was not supposed to be something that just flies through uh there's lots of perspective there's 180 representatives that get to represent their districts and their district's needs there's 56 senators uh, that get to do the same thing. You've got the governor's perspective. You've got my perspective. Uh, we are right in the middle of that process. And certainly I know that uh, yesterday the House passed 
the amended budget, and they'll start working immediately on fiscal year 2021's budget. Uh, we now have it over here in Appropriations Committee. I'll actually, in a few, in an hour or, or 20 minutes, assign it to our Appropriations Committee, and we'll start the process uh, of working through the amended budget and then get the full budget. But, you know, look, at the end of the day, two things we're going to do. I, I want to make sure all 11 million Georgians know this. We are going to pass a budget. And it's going to be balanced. And uh, certainly there's different differences of opinions. But, you know, I think the process we're in, I, I said this to a group yesterday and just kind of exp- just kind of just popped out of my mind. And uh, I had the added benefit of, you know, 24 hours later still feeling like it's a good thing. <laughs> uh, you know, we're, we're in the process of modernizing our budget, right? Just like every business in the world is, is understanding how we integrate technology, how we become more efficient how we reposition human assets in different ways in different departments and different agencies. How do we utilize technology? How do we, you know, so, so certainly state government should be in the middle of that process like the rest of the, 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 the Western Hemisphere and the rest of the world. But also this time we're in right now is, you know, certainly we've had a long extended period of time of economic growth in this country. And, and, and we're certainly riding along the top here economically, but there's, you know, there's, there's, there's mixed signals coming in. There's revenue coming in from different angles, slowing and, and speeding up. And, and we're certainly making sure that we don't wait until, you know, we start to be well into some sort of economic pullback to, to be more efficient with the way we spend hardworking Georgians dollars. Now, related to that, as, as we wrap up here, I know the governor very much wants to get teacher pay raises. Uh, there is a, an issue of hiring and, and retention among teachers. This has become something where it seems like the, the will of the legislature is yes, but where are we going to get the money? Um, how, on that particular issue, what are your thoughts? So, look, I, I go back to the, the, the thousands of people I get to, to be around out all across the state each and every month. And, and I got to tell you, last year when the teacher, first round of teacher pay raises came in, uh, the first part of it, uh, I, I, it's the number one topic. Every part of the state I go to, rural, metro, coast, mountains, uh, south, uh, I get it, uh, several teachers that come up and give me a hug or shake my hand or thank me for those opportunities for them and it continues i continue to hear this investment in the next generation is going to pay dividends for the state of georgia if we want to be the technology capital of the east coast if we want to be an economic powerhouse recognized globally then we need to make sure that we have a k-12 through system that is pr- producing 21st century global economy ready uh, students that are either going to walk into a full-time job at 18 years old or walk into a military position or walk into a two-year technical school or four year or further we got to make sure that we're producing a crop that's up and ready and you know that investment in those teachers making sure that we get the best and brightest to stay in that space uh is i think a huge big step in, in making sure we accomplish our goals here in georgia well listen thank you very much for stopping by and and I, again i can't thank you guys enough for for dealing with the must ministry situation and uh, it, it's it's such a crucial issue to get nonprofits standing up on their own without having to rely on the government to, to help them help people and and thank you so much for your leadership on that and kate kirkpatrick well thanks thanks to Kay for her hard work and it's moments like this it's days like this and bills like this that truly make it rewarding to be a lieutenant governor. Well, thank you very much. Jeff Duncan, lieutenant governor of the state of Georgia. I, I, I want to spend just one more minute on this. We'll get back to the Democrats. But this is important, and it's actually a nationwide thing. It's not just a Georgia thing, although the, the story is out of Georgia. You've got ministries like this around the country. And for again, for those of you who don't understand, Must Ministries is headquartered in Atlanta, 
but it provides meals during the summer to poor kids uh, in a 10 to 12 county area outside in, in parts of rural Georgia outside of Atlanta. Uh, and what happens is companies and individuals and churches agree to make sandwiches for kids during the summer. And I am aware of three different companies in Atlanta that actually invested in renovating their staff break rooms to make kitchens. Now, it, it just, just put this in perspective. You, you've got major companies in Atlanta that had break rooms for employees, and they poured money not to renovate office space, not to renovate bathrooms, but to renovate the break room to turn it into a kitchen so that the employees at this company can come together and all of them make some peanut butter and jelly sandwiches together as a as a corporate activity together, but to help the children. Uh, the, the stuffing box lunches, putting stuff together. And what was happening is these companies now, because the state came in and said, wait a second, this isn't a certified catering kitchen that meets necessary sanitation standards for restaurants. And the employees are not trained on restaurant sanitation. So we got to shut it down. So a lot of these companies stepped up with money and they were buying the lunches, but they couldn't keep up with the demand. They were filling up caterers in Atlanta who didn't have the time for it. And the state solution was that Must Ministries was going to have to find and rent sanitized kitchen and bring all of the volunteers from around the metro Atlanta area there to make the sandwiches, which they couldn't do. You couldn't fit all the people in there at one time. You had people in their homes getting their kids together to make these sandwiches for poor kids. And they couldn't do it anymore. So what this legislation will do is it will allow Must Ministries to go back to what it is doing. Now, there, there is some fine print in, in here, just so you understand. Um, in the legislation... It will require uh, that it'll allow nonprofits to be exempt from rules pertaining to food service establishments, provided they have a local government permit that ensures food is safely and hygienically prepared and delivered. So there will be some complications for the home uh, shops, for people making stuff in their homes. But most of this was businesses getting their employees together and, and doing almost a, an assembly line of sandwiches. And they were shut down, and now they won't be. Uh, they'll all be able – they can be trained. And the Must Ministries, by the way, was training people on food safety, making sure you wash your hands, wear latex gloves, things like that. Uh, and that wasn't good enough for the state. Now they'll be able to go back to this and do this. It, it, this is this is a, one of my pet peeves. And we heard this on, on the stage with the Democrats last night, the desire for government to do everything. When government fills every void, what happens is charities and churches stop functioning. What is Christianity? Well, I mean, you can say it's a it's a belief, acceptance of Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Yep, that's right. What does James say? Care for the widows and the orphans. Care for the poor. The widows, the orphans, and the refugees, and the, the poor. And, and churches 
now, by and large, send their send the kids in their churches off to uh, sunbathe on the beach and hammer some nails. And I don't mean to make light of it. Some people get offended at me saying that we do real work. I, I understand you're doing real work. You're going to Africa. You're you're going to you're going to the beach in Mexico. You're going to different Christian orphanages in Central and South America. You're helping. Uh, you're helping with the kids there. What about in your own backyard? You, 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 now, yes, the New Testament says, "Go forth, preach, teach, baptize. Uh, go to all four corners of the world and do this." Uh, but I, it goes back to Jeremiah, seek the welfare of the city in which you live and pray for it, and there you'll find your welfare. How many churches are out there actually praying for the city in which they are, and how many of the congregants are actually doing charitable work in there? And in the United States, less and less of that happens, except in liberal congregations that are trying to bring heaven on earth with a social gospel, conservative evangelical congregations, a lot of them don't do it. Uh, they send their kids on mission trips somewhere else, and they don't pay attention to their backyard. And in large part, it's not their fault. They don't pay attention to their backyard because you got the government doing it. The government has has collapsed local nonprofits. People rely on the federal government instead of relying on their local government, instead of relying on their families, instead of their relying on their local nonprofits. And we see why in must ministry, the government comes in, they hate the competition. And so they drive up the cost for the local ministries to be able to feed the poor because the government wants to feed the poor and the government doesn't feed the poor as well as the nonprofit. So good for the state of Georgia and for the legislature here realizing this is a problem and engaging in a way to fix the problem so that uh, the poor can be fed by must ministries in Atlanta with actual human beings and offices and homes to some degree back able to help. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. If you want to be a part of the program, the phone number is 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. Let, let's hear a little more of Mike Bloomberg. I know you've taken yourself out of the 2012 presidential yes. race, but another New Yorker may be getting in, Donald Trump. What do you think? Uh, America's a wonderful country. Everybody <laughs> that's born here and is over 35 has the opportunity. I know Donald Trump. He's a great guy. He he doesn't do everything he says, but he sure tries, and I'm a big fan of Donald Trump. Think he's going to run? Uh, I have no idea. You'll have to ask Donald Trump. Okay. Oh, that was from 2012. More opposition research about Bloomberg. Listen, Bloomberg's got a record, and the Democrats are going to use that record against him. They are going to come out after him. Uh, I got to play it. Look, I've gotten more from the debate, but I'm actually more fascinated by the reaction from last night's debate. And I want to play that for you when we come back. But I just one more clip, just so you get a real sense of what it was like last night. I'm trying. You need to understand. I'm trying not to use profanity, I, and I got to watch my tongue today because I mean this this was this was a mess last night. Let's just listen to this exchange. This is only 19 seconds, and it's priceless. This is Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg. What's in the Senate in you know, Washington? Let's, let's talk, talk about, about it. it. Let's, let's talk about the major This question is for you. I want to talk about, and maybe this is appropriate. <laughs> Somebody said it. It really was like a family debating politics at the Thanksgiving dinner table. Oh, man, it was a mess. And, and they were totally out to get Bloomberg. It was, it was, oh, in fact, Bloomberg made a fatal mistake last night. And I do think it probably was fatal. 
It, and it was it had nothing to do with with Elizabeth Warren savaging him. It had everything to do with stop and frisk. Remember, Bloomberg has apologized for it. In fact, I've sat, I've apologized, I've asked for forgiveness. But the bottom line is that we stopped too many people. See, just just that's all you need to hear. I've I've stopped it. I asked for forgiveness. I'm sorry, but it worked. It worked. <laughs> that's not asking for forgiveness. That's saying it worked, you idiots. I'll do anything to get this nomination, but it worked. And when, by God, when I'm president, we're going to do it nationwide. <laughs> oh, what a craptacular festival last night in Vegas. Oh, I hope they all went to the marijuana shops afterwards. They probably needed it. More on this when we come back. Mayor Bloomberg, should you exist? I can't speak for all billionaires. All I know is I've been very lucky, made a lot of money, and I'm giving it all away to make this country better. And a good chunk of it goes to the Democratic Party as well. Is it too much? Have you earned too much money? Has it been an obscene amount of Should you have earned that much money? Yes. I worked very hard yeah. for it. And I'm giving okay. it away. Right. Thank you. <laughs> there you have it. Uh, Bloomberg uh, defending his money. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. If you want to be a part of the program, I got to play this audio again because it's just too too fantastic not to play. I, I've got audio from last night's debate I want to play for you, but I'm really, I was fascinated by the press reaction to uh, what happened on stage last night. But this is how it begun. We got a scalping from Pocahontas in Las Vegas. We will have Donald Trump for another four years, and we can't stand that. So I'd, I'd like to talk about who we're running against. A billionaire who calls women fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. And no, I'm not talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about Mayor Bloomberg. Oh, yes. And and this again, you've heard it in the first hour. Some people just tuning in might have missed it. And it's just too good not to play again. The moment the Bloomberg campaign collapsed on the debate stage last night, again, brought to you by Elizabeth Warren. I hope you heard what his defense was. I've been nice to some women. That just doesn't cut it. The mayor has to stand on his record. And what we need to know is exactly what's lurking out there. He has gotten some number of women, dozens, who knows, to sign non-disclosure agreements, both for sexual harassment and for gender discrimination in the workplace. So, Mr. Mayor, are you willing to release all of those women from those non-disclosure agreements so we can hear their side of the story? A very few non-disclosure agreements. Uh, how many? Let is me that? finish. How many is that? None of them accuse me of doing anything other than maybe they didn't like the joke I told. And let me just. Put, oh. There's a be agreements between two parties that wanted to keep it quiet, and that's up to them. They signed those agreements, so, and we'll live with it. So wait, Good. when you say it is up, to, I just want to be clear. Some is how many? 
and and when you and when you say they signed them and they wanted them if they wish now to speak out and tell their side of the story about what it is they allege that's now okay with you you're releasing them on television tonight senator no is that right no no i'm not releasing them Senator, the company and somebody else, in this case, a man or a woman, or could be more than that, they decided when they made an agreement that they wanted to keep it quiet for everybody's no. interest. They signed the agreements, and that's what we're going to live I, with. I'm sorry. No, the question is, are I the women bound by being muzzled by you? And you could release them from that immediately. Because understand, this is not just a question of the mayor's character. This is also a question about electability. We are not going to beat Donald Trump with a man who has who knows how many non-disclosure agreements and the drip, drip, drip of stories of women saying they have been harassed and discriminated against. She's right in that, but there's a really interesting moment here, and I want to play this curious little bit from Bloomberg one more time. Uh, listen to this phrase that he used. Somebody else, in this case, a man or a woman, or could be more than that. A man or a woman, or could be more than that. That's that's striking that Bloomberg would say it that way. Uh, what does he know? He clearly knows something. Well, what was the reaction to all this? First of all, I got to get to Bernie Sanders in the House remark because, uh, you know, Bloomberg actually dared to throw a punch at Bernie Sanders and, and Sanders didn't handle things that well. People, not billionaires, health care for all, educational opportunity all right, for all, Senator, thank you. Mayor Bloomberg, would you like to, that the question was about socialism. What a wonderful country we have. The best known socialist in the country happens to be a millionaire with three houses. What I miss here? Well, you'll miss that I work in Washington, House 1. That's the first problem. Live in Burlington, House 2. That's good. And like thousands of other Vermonters, I do have a summer but, camp. Forgive me for that. But, Where is your home? But, Which tax... Which tax haven New do you York, have your home? New York City, thank you very much. Yeah, right. And I pay yeah, all my home. taxes. <laughs> and I'm happy to do it because I get something for it. Yeah, but also the uh, Bermuda, London, in Los Angeles, Hawaii, and I think Paris. <laughs> but you know, hey, uh, that was a good that was a good comeback against uh, the, the the Democratic Socialist. Bernie Sanders. Uh, here's a little more Bernie. But Senator Sanders, I'm going to I'm going to move to fracking. You want a total ban on nat- natural gas extraction, yep. fracking in the next five years. The industry obviously supports a lot of a lot of jobs around the country, yep. including thousands in the battleground state of Pennsylvania. One unit official there told The New York Times, quote, if we end up with a Democratic candidate that supports a fracking ban, I'm going to tell my members that either you don't vote or you vote for the other guy. What do you tell these workers? It's supporting a big industry right now, sir. What I tell these workers is that the scientists are telling us that if we don't act incredibly boldly within the next six, seven years, there will be irreparable damage done, not just to Nevada, not just to Vermont or Massachusetts, but to the entire world. 
Joe said it right. This is an existential threat. You know what that means, Chuck? That means we're fighting for the future of this planet. And the Green New Deal that I support, by the way, will create up to 20 million good-paying jobs as we move our energy system away from fossil fuel to energy efficiency and sustainable energy. This is a moral issue, my friends. We have to ha take the responsibility of making sure that the planet we leave our children and grandchildren is a planet okay. that is healthy and habitable. We only got seven years. I thought we had a decade. We've only got seven years, according to him. Now, uh, a little more Bloomberg before we get to the crowd reaction. Uh, is Mike Bloomberg sexist? Let me let me say a couple things, and have, if I can have my full minute and a, qu a quarter, thank you. Um, <laughs> I have no tolerance for the kind of behavior that the Me Too movement has exposed. And anybody that does anything wrong in our company, we investigate it, and if it's appropriate, they're gone that day. But let me tell you what I do in my company and my foundation and in city government when I was there. In my foundation, the person that runs it's a woman, 70% of the people there are women. In my company, lots and lots of women have big responsibilities. They get paid exactly the same as men. And in my, um, uh, in City Hall, the person that's the top person, my deputy mayor was a woman, and 40% of our commissioners were women. I am very proud of the fact that th about uh, two weeks ago, we were awarded uh, we were voted the uh, most, the, the best place to work, second best place in America. <laughs> if that doesn't say something about our employees and how happy they are, I don't know what does. Yeah, okay. But that's not enough to make up for the Elizabeth Warren stuff because then he got asked about stop and frisk. And remember, so he, let me explain the stop and frisk policy to you. Stop and frisk was a policy where if the uh, if the police got a uh, report that someone had committed a crime and they saw someone on the street who looked like the person who committed the crime, they had the right to stop and frisk that person without a warrant. And what was happening statistically in New York City is a lot of young black men. Well, you, a young black men rob store. So any young black man the police saw in the area, they would stop them, throw them up against a wall and frisk them. And if they found drugs or gun, well, they'd go to jail for that, even if they didn't commit the crime. And so a lot of young men went to jail for these. Uh, had, they had marijuana or uh, meth or mostly marijuana, though, and, and guns. And they would they'd get in trouble for it and they would be carted off to jail. It, it actually was a problem. And the mayor says, and it's true, here's, here's the corollaries. It actually brought the crime rate down in New York City. And the crime rate, since they've stopped stopping for us, has skyrocketed in New York City. And, and Bloomberg feels compelled to defend his policy. Well, if I go back and look at my time in office, the one thing that I'm um, really worried about, embarrassed about, was how it turned out um, with stop and frisk. When I got into office, there were 650 murders a year in New York City. 
And I thought that my first responsibility was to give people the right to live. That's the basic right of everything. And we started, a, we adopted a policy which had been in place, uh, the policy that all big uh, police departments use of stop and frisk. What happened, however, was it got out of control. And when we discovered, I discovered that we were doing many, many, too many stop and frisks, we cut 95% of it out. And I've sat down with a bunch of uh, African-American clergy and business people to talk about this, to try to learn. I've talked to a number of kids who'd been stopped. And uh, I'm trying to, I was trying to understand how we change our policies so we can keep the city safe because the crime rate did go from 650, 50% down to 300. And we have to keep the lid on crime, but we cannot go out and stop people right, Mayor, indiscriminately. Mayor, that thank you. Let me go to Vice President. Listen, he, Bloomberg wants to be repentant. I, I, I played this audio earlier. I've sat, I've apologized, I've asked for forgiveness, but the bottom line is that we stopped too many people. We stopped too many people, except it worked. The policy worked and and he can't he can't distance himself uh, without actually without actually defending the policy. Now, uh, to Bloomberg and and Bernie, there are too many B's now. Bernie, Bloomberg, Biden, Buttigieg, Buttigieg decided he needed to stand out from the field and go after Bernie Sanders. Yes, we've got to wake up as a party. We, We could wake up two weeks from today the day after Super Tuesday, and the only candidates left standing will be Bernie Sanders and Mike Bloomberg, the two most polarizing figures on this stage. And most Americans don't see where they fit if they've got to choose between a socialist who thinks that capitalism is the root of all evil and a billionaire who thinks that money ought to be the the root of all power. Let's put forward somebody who actually lives and works in a middle-class neighborhood in an industrial Midwestern city. Let's put forward somebody who's actually a Democrat. Look. (laughs) Good line. Good line. We shouldn't have to choose between one candidate who wants to burn this party down and another candidate who wants to buy this party out. That listen, that was a good line by Buttigieg. He's right. Uh, Bloomberg was a Republican. Bernie Sanders, a Democratic Socialist, not actually a member of the Democratic Party, not a member of the Democratic Party in the Senate. Uh, and all of this is making people on the Democratic Party realize Bernie Sanders is going to be the nominee. It's looking more and more that way. Now, it, it, it could change. Listen, I, I was one of the ones who thought this was Biden's race to lose. By God, he's lost it. Uh, but Bernie, all these people are, are fighting over the chance to go after Bernie. And listen, uh, perspective from the Trump campaign. Here's Dana Bash on CNN last night. But I have to tell you, I'm hearing from the Trump campaign and they're thrilled, as you can imagine. And because? It's exactly the point that Gloria was making earlier. And you, too, which is there the circular firing squad Every time that happens, which hasn't happened a lot in, in the fairness to, to the to the Democrats until now, for the most part, the debate stages that you were on, Andrew, um, the focus has not been on each other and it's been more on on the president. That's not the case now. And they see they claim that they see the numbers going up for the president. It's always better for the president, obviously, when their sites aren't trained on him and rather each other. Yeah, and A.B. Stoddard on Fox echoing this. I thought it was a great night for Bernie Sanders. I thought it was a great night for Donald Trump. I thought it was a terrible night for the Democrats. 
And I don't think uh, Bloomberg's bad night is going to matter, uh, given the amount of money he's spending on the ground, given the fact that a lot of voters uh, who are going to matter later are not really watching debates. Yeah, but the buzz matters. There, there are a lot of people with the counter counter wisdom this morning that, you know, it won't really matter. We got another debate. He'll be able to improve. Maybe so. And he can. But you've got California coming up uh, March 3rd, and a lot of people were watching that debate last night in California. NBC News ran a focus group with them, and they weren't impressed. And the voting has already begun. That's what all these people forget. The voting in Super Tuesday states has already begun. Early voting is beginning. And the people who were waiting to make up their mind on Bloomberg saw that debate performance last night, and ugh, we'll get into the reaction when we come back. You can go to the website. Uh, and by the way, I'm going to start encouraging people to use my sub stack. I will, I'll, I'll dive into the details with you, but some of you have signed up for some of the emails. You're going to start getting emails from me on, on a site called Substack. stack, uh, long form emails that you can read uh, whenever you want to read them. And in, in moving people there, uh, largely because I, I feel really, I, I, I need to focus on growing radio. And I constantly feel bound now on, on the, the writing schedule of I've got to write a syndicated column and I've got to write another syndicated column and I've got to write a daily thing for, for my website. And there's just it, there's a, a, a whole lot and it, it's distracting me from what actually pays the bills, which is radio. And, and so I want to I want to focus on that and you'll get emails. And, and frankly, it's a great way for you to support the show as well. We'll be to subscribe to the Substack. Uh, seven bucks a month uh, to get all the the inside analysis, exclusive interviews, podcasts, discounts on the conference, all that good stuff. Um, so we'll, we'll be dealing with that here uh, in a bit. I'll I'll get that set up so you can. But you, you're going to start already getting emails uh, from me uh, from Substack. The other thing you will get are the recipe emails and the activist emails. If you want to text the word recipe or the word army to 33777. You can get the weekly recipe by texting the word recipe to 33777. You'll get the uh, activist alerts as they come out. I'm sure we'll have a big fight in Georgia with the pay raises for teachers here soon. You'll be able to get that by texting the word army to 33777. Now, I want to talk about the reaction to Bloomberg because that is deeply relevant. Andrew Yang has been hired by CNN. Uh, now that he's left the presidential campaign, he's going to be one of the talking heads on CNN. And here he is, his debut performance on CNN last night. When I wasn't sure if I was going to make the debate and my team got me together to prepare. And you're really not sure if you're preparing because you're like, I'm not sure if I'm going to be in this debate. So Mike, even though he was, I'm sure, getting coached, and prepared, he was like, I don't know if I'm going to be in this debate. And so I don't think he was coached hard enough. Number two, he was clearly instructed to keep his cool no matter what. Mm -hmm. But that ended up presenting as being lethargic and uninterested for a big chunk of the debate. And the third most telling thing is that if I'm his team, you know he's going to get a stop and frisk question, like a, a gender discrimination or mistreatment question. So you coach him and you have him give you 60, 75 second answers over and over again until he can do it in his sleep. And the fact that he did not have those answers at his fingertips lets me know categorically he was not properly prepared for well, this debate. 
He wasn't. For a guy who can buy that much, the, the debate seemed to be a distraction to him. And maybe it was. I mean, listen, uh, very well, that maybe this won't matter to him. Maybe it won't, except for the fact that early voting has begun in the Super Tuesday states. Let me give you the rundown of the states uh, that will be voting. And, and the voting begins... Uh, Super Tuesday is March 3rd. So you've got uh, this weekend in Nevada, you've got the caucus. On Saturday, you've got the caucus. Then on February 29th, you have the, uh, you got the South Carolina primary. February 29th, the South Carolina primary, that is, uh, that is the leap year day, leap day. The 29th, it'll be Saturday. So you've got a week between Nevada and South Carolina. And then from South Carolina, you've got three days, three days. You've got Alabama, Arkansas, California, Colorado, Maine, Massachusetts, Minnesota, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, Vermont, and Virginia. And then the next week, you've got more states. Momentum matters. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is... 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Yeah, I had to pause there and think, okay, don't give out my cell phone number because I started to do that the other day. Uh, don't give out the number for the other show because uh, I've, I've done that. Nope, the number, 877-973-7425. I do want to talk about, George, the, the, the Leffler-Collins situation uh, we are going to be treated to just stupidity uh, by all sides, and I, I, I want to talk about that, but I want to actually get to some of the reaction from the media last night uh, because it's striking. They're beginning to freak out about Bernie Sanders, and they're, they're disgusted by what they saw from Bloomberg, who they were really hoping would be the white knight to save them from Sanders. Here's Jason Johnson, Democratic strategist on MSNBC. Yeah, so the, the big new name tonight was going to be Mike Bloomberg, and this probably was the most expensive night in Vegas I've ever seen. Uh, he lost everything. This guy has spent $320 million. He had the opportunity to really stand on stage and appear to be an equal with everybody else and he looked bored uh he looked disenchanted he absolutely stumbled over very obvious questions that anybody could have anticipated about sexual harassment and ndas and stop and frisk um i thought it was a very bad night for him he's probably doubling the salaries of his staff who want to go into the spin room because i wouldn't want to go in there and defend him after the night that he had and uh, David Pluff, who was one of a, uh, Barack Obama's top advisors, uh, joins in this conversation. This isn't anymore about like figure skating judges or diving, you know, ratings. This is about how it connects to actually votes that you need to get now. And so the truth is Bernie Sanders is on its trajectory to be the Democratic nominee. Yes. Here's the CNN panel. And, you know, if you have millions and millions of dollars and you could cut clips from this debate and you say show the clip you show the well, you're, show the show the good clip show the good clip well, that's the way it works right show yeah, the good really. clip where where he challenges Sanders on his electability, mm -hmm. you can use that in an ad. One, but nobody, one clip. That's all you need. Uh, one clip that that's his only I mean again this is Gloria and by the way Gloria Borger she's a dear friend of mine and and this this is her this is her, the, the moment she's referring to last night Gloria what mattered most well I think Bloomberg's best moments were probably when he was quiet I, he, he did <laughs> <laughs> he's quiet yeah now the, the one clip she's talking about is this one I don't think there's any chance of uh, 
the senator beating President Trump. You don't start out by saying, uh, I've got 160 million people. I'm going to take away the insurance plan that they love. That's just not a ways that you go and start building the coalition that the Sanders uh, camp thinks that they can do. I don't think there's any chance whatsoever. And if he goes and is the candidate, we will have Donald Trump for another four years. Oh, yeah. Uh, Chris Matthews echoing this. And I hope that the candidates uh, who have been telegraphing their punches against Sanders, Senator Sanders, are actually going to deliver them. I mean, I hope they actually do what they promised to do. Are they going to go after him about the bad behavior of, of Bernie's supporters or not? Is this how they do things in Denmark? Nobody just says the obvious. Bernie, you're full of it. None of this is going to get passed. They're just pandering to the Bernie people. And you know what? Pandering gets you nothing. It certainly doesn't get your respect. They've got to get out there and say, I disagree with socialism. I believe in the markets. Right. I think he's wrong. I think he'll never get it done. And this country will never go that direction. And by the way, we'll lose 49 states. And I was there in 1972 at the Democratic Convention where the people yeah. on the left were yeah. dancing in glee. I saw them. They were literally, John Kenneth Galbraith, dancing in a circle. They were so happy that they defeated right. the moderates by Tip O'Neill and Dick Daly. And they went on to lose 49 states in their glee. So that can happen again. So It just might. Steve Schmidt, who was an advisor for John McCain. When you hear Steve Schmidt talk, you realize John McCain was never going to win anything uh, other than his Arizona Senate seat. He's now an MSNBC commentator, a a Republican who's really a Democrat and always has been. Here's Schmidt. About 10 months out from the election, uh, what the Democratic Party has produced is a 78-year-old socialist from Vermont who is picking up steam and is going to be a unstoppable force before very much longer on the way to the nomination. And so the theory that there is some great base of people yearning for socialism in the United States of America is a fever dream and a fantasy. And here's the deal. There's literally no one in this country who interacts with government. Not at a local level, not at a county level, not at a state level, not at a federal level. Who comes out of that experience saying, God, that was great. Terrific. I want to put these people in charge of more stuff, give them more money, more power, more control. And he will be carrying forward into this election some of the most unpopular positions on issues that any candidate ever has. He wants to take away private health insurance from 150 million people. Go tell those union workers in Michigan and Pennsylvania, those union men and women, that they're going to lose their private health insurance. It is a death sentence for the party, and it will lead to Donald Trump's reelection, in, in my view. And, and that will play out tonight, because the issue that is propelling Sanders forward right now is the myth of electability. He's viewed by the Democratic voters as the most electable candidate. He is, and you can hear the despair in Steve Schmidt's voice. He knows that Sanders is going to have a hard time winning. As much as people don't like Donald Trump, 
they'll go for Donald Trump over a socialist, a Democratic socialist with Bernie Sanders baggage. Remember, Bernie Sanders has been a politician for 40 years. There's a lot of stuff out there uh, that hasn't even come out yet about Bernie Sanders. And the Republicans have massive binders on Bernie Sanders. You know, Mitt Romney had binders full of women. (laughs) The Republicans have binders full of oppo research on Sanders. One more here. This is from Chris Saliza, the purveyor of the most conventional of all conventional wisdom in Washington. I think you got to be really careful to start throwing those sorts of claims around. And again, Bernie Sanders, oldest person to ever be elected if he wins. And he had a heart attack on the campaign trail in the fall. I've seen, uh, this is not a partisan thing, I've seen critics from the left and the right of Sanders in the last 24 hours since he uh, answered that question at our town hall, basically said, I'm not going to give up any more medical records. Uh, I've seen critics emerge on both sides. Look, this is the treatment you get when you are the front runner, when you are the most likely person to be the Democratic nominee for president against Donald Trump. And I think it's still an open question. It's not a place Bernie Sanders has ever been before. He's always been the guy charging at the windmill. He's not the dog who caught the car. Well... Now he is, at least for the moment in the race, and we'll see how he handles it. <laughs> yes, uh, Willie Geist on MSNBC on, on Morning Joe this morning. They, you know, the gloves were on for the first several debates. That was one of the criticisms of this field is that it had been too polite. That all changed in the first 30 seconds of the debate last night, as we just showed. We talked uh, yesterday at this time about Mayor Bloomberg, that he was the first time up on the stage, on a debate stage with this group. How would he respond? They tore the skin off him yesterday, uh, last night in Las Vegas. Elizabeth Warren leading the way. Listen, y'all, I'm playing you the the reactions from the press for a reason here. It's not just I don't want to talk or I'm lazy. Uh, Yeah, you'd be surprised when I play a lot of audio. uh, People will email you just being a lazy host. No, there's there's a reason for this. The Democrats, it's starting to dawn on them that they're screwing up their chances in 2020. It's starting to dawn on them. And we know it's starting to dawn on them because it's reflective in the press coverage. The press realizes that Bernie Sanders is going to have a really hard time beating Donald Trump because the American public doesn't like socialism. I mean, again, if you weren't here in the first hour, I did not start with the Democratic debate coverage last night. I I didn't start there. I started with the story that needs to be the lead story everywhere today. For the first time in his presidency, more Americans approve of Donald Trump's job performance than disapprove. Let me say that again. Read this. For the first time in his presidency, more Americans approve of Donald Trump's performance than disapprove of Donald Trump's performance. This comes as the Democrats took the debate stage in Nevada. It's not like Gallup went out last night and surveyed people. They've done it over a couple of days, and this happened before they took the debate stage. This happened as Bloomberg was on the rise. This happened as Bernie Sanders got into the first place. As Bernie Sanders has gone up in the polls for the Democrats, the president's popularity has gone up. That's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence that his popularity has gone up post-impeachment. It's not a coincidence his popularity has gone up with the Bill William Barr stuff. It's not a coincidence 
That is the Democrats struggle to find someone to stop Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden implodes. Donald Trump is more popular than he's ever been. He can win re-election with a 49% job approval rating. Hell, he can win re-election with a 46% job approval rating. And guess what? In the polling average yesterday, I spent an entire time saying, no, look at the individual face, look at the polling average. Donald Trump's polling average, 46.7%. He can win re-election. The Democrats are going to have a hard time with Bernie Sanders. And again, just because people in California and New York love Bernie Sanders and love socialism doesn't mean the people in Michigan do or Wisconsin do and or Pennsylvania do or Iowa do or even Minnesota or Georgia or North Carolina or Arizona or Colorado or Florida. I mean, Bernie Sanders on the stage last night advocated putting people out of work in Colorado putting thousands of Americans on the unemployment line in Colorado because he wants to ban fracking and basically said they could learn to code. It's not good. By the way, a buddy of mine texts me that uh, someone has gone into Mike Bloomberg's uh, Wikipedia entry and listed him as he died. Mike Bloomberg has died. Uh, he died yesterday. Cause of death. Uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> <laughs> yes, cause of death, Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> that <laughs> well played, whoever did that. Well, well played indeed. Um, yikes, <laughs> y'all. This the Democrats. The reason I'm playing you all the audio commentary is because everyone thought Bloomberg would get on stage. You know, listen. You go out and you hire a debate coach. If you're going to be on a debate on a national stage, you go out and you hire a debate coach. And the debate coach preps you. Let me me play this Andrew Yang bit again. Andrew Yang, uh, very wealthy, went out, hired a debate coach. Listen to this again. This is important. It really is important. When I wasn't sure if I was going to make the debate and my team got me together to prepare, And you're really not sure if you're preparing because you're like, I'm not sure if I'm going to be in this debate. So Mike, even though he was, I'm sure, getting coached and prepared, he was like, I don't know if I'm going to be in this debate. And so I don't think he was coached hard enough. Number two, he was clearly instructed to keep his cool no matter what. Mm -hmm. But that ended up presenting as being lethargic and uninterested for a big chunk of the debate. And the third most telling thing is that if I'm his team, you know he's going to get a stop and frisk question like a a gender discrimination or mistreatment question. So you coach him and you have him give you 60, 75 second answers over and over again until he can do it in his sleep. And the fact that he did not have those answers at his fingertips lets me know categorically he was not properly prepared for this debate. And and that's the issue here. When you've got a candidate and you're in a debate with a candidate, you do debate prep. Bloomberg went on that stage with the arrogance of a billionaire who didn't think they could lay a glove on him. And they did. Bloomberg has never had to be on a debate stage like that before. And he presumed that he would be okay. He, he phoned it in. I don't know who, I, I don't even know that he did debate prep. When I was doing political campaigns and, and there would be debates, I would get the candidate in the room and we would drill with the candidate on the questions that you knew. Uh, essentially, what happens is you do opposition research on your own candidate. Uh, the candidates who tend to do the worst are the ones who fail to do the opposition research on themselves. So you do the opposition research on the candidate, you get all their questions, and you sit in a room with the candidate 
And you say, okay, they're going to ask you about this. We need to prepare an answer. Just like Andrew Yang was saying, you know that their answer to Bloomberg was going to be stop and frisk. You know it was going to be stop and frisk. If I were Bloomberg's campaign manager, what I would have advised him to say is very simple. We had a crime problem in New York City in his last years in office, Rudy Giuliani was asleep at the switch, surfing off the popularity, uh, surfing off his popularity as crime started to go back up, and we had to do something, and so we came up with stop and frisk. In hindsight, it was wrong, and we were looking at the numbers, and we weren't looking at the people, and it taught me the valuable lesson that sometimes you get so obsessed with the numbers, you forget the people, and I was wrong, and I'm sorry, and but it has taught me from here on out, we need to look at the people, not the numbers. And that's the problem with Donald Trump is he looks at the numbers, he looks at the economic numbers, and he forgets all the people who are left behind. And we need to get those people together. I just did that off the top of my head. I mean, I didn't even plan this out. I'm just rambling off the top of my head here. But that's what I would have said. That's what, If I was his debate coach, I would have said that. And you and I can say that's crazy that all these people are being elevated out of poverty because of President Trump. But it plays well on a Democrat stage. And the fact that he didn't do that uh, actually speaks poorly of his campaign. They can run all the ads, but you know what? There's no commission in a debate coach. There's no commission in a debate coach. Bloomberg's entire staff gets commissioned on the ads, on the mail, on the debate stage prep, all of it. They're going to get commissions. There's no commission with a debate coach, and there was no one willing to be the debate coach. Bloomberg's going to have to pay a pretty penny before the South Carolina debate and find him someone who's willing to actually get him on stage and have it matter. I, I feel compelled at this point to do it. If you are listening to me right now, uh, you're getting either mist or rain. Uh, in fact, in, in Dalton, it's misty. And in the rest of the listening audience, you, well, Clarksville, it's kind of rain and mist. Uh, everybody else has rain today, all the way down to Albany. Uh, y'all listen, y'all listening in Albany. I'm sorry. It's Albany. I, I can't, I, I need to get my wife in here to do her South Georgia accent on, on how to actually pronounce Albany in a way that people in Albany know you're talking about them. But nonetheless, uh, all the way down to South Georgia, uh, there is rain. Uh, the rain stops. Uh, well, if you're in the Adel, uh, Quitman, Thomasville, Valdosta area, no, you're not getting this. Uh, but, but Tifton and above, you're getting rain and it stretches all the way out towards Vidalia. We're, we're getting rain all over the place today and it's going to turn into snow. Those of you listening up in North Georgia on my affiliates up there, you're going to get snow. I, I hate your guts right now because you're going to get snow and, and we haven't had snow in Macon this year. We haven't had snow in Macon. And, oh, no, no, it snowed a little bit uh, at the beginning of last year. Just a little bit, but not enough. Um, yeah, well, okay. All right. All right. All right. Um, we have other stuff we have to talk about. We, we've got to talk about the, the Leffler-Collins race. And i got to tell you, I've gotten some really angry emails from the Collins supporters. And I, I'm not even beating up Doug Collins. I'm, I, I keep saying I'm, I like the guy, and, and I've explained my rationale for saying that I, I, I'm with the governor on this. I, I, I think we owe it to the governor. The governor has been good. The governor has, has had our back as, as conservatives. 
we should be willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. And thus far, uh, his nominee and, and the person he put in the Senate has held up and done everything right. Uh, the underlying, I think the underlying premise of the people who support Doug Collins is that she's only doing it to get herself reelected and then she'll be squishy, which is kind of ironic given uh, Doug Collins's track record in the House uh, until the president came along was way more of a moderate uh, Republican than a than a really hardcore conservative Republican. And that's fine. Listen, I, I like Doug Collins, um, but to, to hold against Leffler that she may go squishy in the future is to presume that Doug Collins won't, and and he does have a, a track record that I hear the Leffler campaign is going to go up against him on immigration and other issues. Now, that being said, we're going to get into the juvenile silly season in this race of two candidates who are identical on the issues. Uh, the, the major difference is that Doug Collins is a better candidate. Uh, hands down, Doug Collins is a vastly better candidate than Leffler, and she's going to have to get herself up to speed and comfortable on the campaign trail. Uh, and both sides are in this tit-for-tat over Stacey Abrams that I want to put on your radar when we come back. Uh, you can roll your eyes collectively with me when we delve into this when we come back here on The Eric Erickson Show. I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm sorry. I'm reading something that's important. I, I got to educate you people. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. Uh, the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, the phone lines are open, and I do want to send out a recipe to you this week. I hadn't figured out what. Um, but if you text the word recipe to three, three, seven, 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 I will send you a recipe. Uh, I, I will. Um, and uh, I, I may add you to my Substack list so you can get other stuff too. Uh, no charge, not going to sell the list. Don't worry about it. But more importantly, army text the word army to three, three, seven, 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 uh, army is the list for conservative activists nationwide. I don't care where you live in the nation. If you're listening to me right now, we just had a caller from Massachusetts a little while ago. Uh, you want to be, uh, you want to be on the army activist list because when there's conservative action in your state, uh, whether it's Georgia or elsewhere, or when it's a national mobilization effort for con congressional matters, uh, I can send you an email or a text, uh, quickly and have you call your member of Congress, your state legislator, whatever, uh, you, you want to be involved with this. So text the word army to three, three, seven, 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 take action now. Uh, and I want to move on to the Leffler Collins race. And I want to start with some audio. Bear with me. Don't get mad at me for playing this. My Lord, some of you people are so sensitive over this stuff, but you got to hear this. This is important. Uh, and it's important for for what's going to happen on the campaign trail. This is Doug Collins uh, from a couple of weeks ago talking. Where is he talking? He's, he's talking at some institute about politics. Listen to this. Great to hear from you. I was wondering, especially as someone uh, running a new election this year, are you at all worried about election security, especially uh, through technological innovation? Yeah, it, it is. I, I I'm worried on two points. I'm worried as, as we all are about, you know, the election security and making sure we have free and fair elections. That's, that is uh, a part. I'm also worried about the, and this is a bigger issue, because Georgia's been front and center. Um, believe it or not, Stacey Abrams and I are, are good friends. We came into the Georgia legislature at the same time. 
I could, I could pick up my phone back there, have Will give me my phone. I could call her right now and she'd answer the phone. She could talk to y'all. Y'all probably, some of y'all like that a lot better than me. Uh, I get it. Um, but, but we're friends. I disagree with her greatly, though, on the characterization of what happened in Georgia. Collins and Abrams are such good friends. Uh, she named a character in one of her romance novels, Doug Collins. Now, I am not bringing this up. Believe it or not. If you're a Doug Collins supporter, you're angry with me for bringing this up right now. You think it's irrelevant. And that's exactly why I'm bringing it up. The the reason all this stuff about uh, Collins and Abrams is coming out is because someone on the Collins team thought it would be clever to push out the picture of Kelly Leffler with Stacey Abrams at a WNBA event to claim that Collins or claim that Leffler and Abrams were close friends or that Leffler had helped Abrams or some such. And so the Leffler campaign has responded and they're pushing out pictures of Doug Collins hugging Stacey Abrams and Doug Collins saying nice things about Stacey Abrams. Y'all, I say nice things about Stacey Abrams as well. You may hate her guts. She's a very nice person. Uh, you may disagree with her politically. Doug Collins and I both do. Uh, we disagree with her vehemently across the board on issues. But I sat and interviewed Stacey Abrams last year. Uh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. Two years ago now, because um, it's 2020 now. So when she was running for governor, I interviewed her for an hour. And we found very few things on which we dis- on which we agreed. But it was a great interview. She was one of the best interviews I conducted in the last couple of years. She was a very good interview. Uh, She was a very kind person to me. Uh, She was very nice to the crowd. Many of them didn't like her. And yet she was gracious to them. They were gracious to her. Uh, And I will tell you, it matters to me that she's self-deprecating, just like Doug Collins. Uh, They are self-deprecating. Doug Collins can make a joke about himself. Stacey Abrams can make a joke about herself. Stacey Abrams will laugh at the the silly things she's done on the campaign trail, and she's willing to laugh about it. Mike Bloomberg is not willing to laugh at the things Mike Bloomberg has done. Uh, Mike Bloomberg has no sense of humor about his groups. Neither does Bernie Sanders. And Stacey Abrams does. And that matters, frankly. It matters because whether you like it or not, if Stacey Abrams were governor of the state of Georgia today, and thank God she's not, but if she were, you would have to find some way to try to get through to her that you got to find some level of common ground with her on some policies and on some things you would never agree with and on some things you would. I do not care one whit the Doug Collins. I, in fact, I'm, I'm kind of, I, I like the fact that Doug Collins is willing to be friends with people with whom he vehemently disagrees. Now, I, I'm bringing all of this up because we have a problem. We've got two candidates in the state of Georgia who disagree virtually on everything except they don't. There is no disagreement between these. As much as they want to say there's a disagreement, as much as they want to fight and quibble around the edges, they agree on everything. They agree on the president. They agree on impeachment. They agree on defense. They agree on the budget. They agree on tax cuts. They agree on taxes. They agree on corporate uh, law reform. They agree on defense reform. They agree on on uh, Social Security. They agree on Medicare. They agree on Medicaid. They agree on health care. They agree on education. Uh, yeah, tick, 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 tick. Go, go down. Check all the boxes. They agree. Doug Collins and Kelly Leffler agree on everything. And so what this fight is going to be about is personality. And Doug Collins beats Kelly Leffler on personality. Can we just acknowledge it? I know I'm not supposed to say that loud. 
and I'm back. I'm going to back Kelly Leffler, and I'll I'll tell you I'm backing Leffler because one, I think she can improve. She's not comfortable on the campaign trail yet. Let's just acknowledge she's not comfortable on the trail, but she's got time to get comfortable on the trail. But she also is uh, when it comes to to a lot of the the future financial regulations and financial laws that we have in this country. Yes, she's got conflicts of interest, but yes, this is her wheelhouse. We need someone in the Senate right now who knows about um, Bitcoin and and blockchain and and these these terms that you and I hear all the time and none of us really understand what they mean. We actually need someone who has detailed knowledge of that because the the information financial security is the future of where this country is headed, and she's an, literally an expert on it. I'm, I'm supporting Kelly Leffler because Brian Kemp chose her, and Brian Kemp has stood shoulder to shoulder with conservatives, doing all the stuff that everyone said he wouldn't do. He kept all of his promises, and I trust his instinct on this. But I would not be opposed to Doug Collins. I like Doug Collins. And I refuse to get into the the tit for tat over who's a better friend of Stacey Abrams, or that that, that Doug Collins loves Stacey, or Stacey Abrams named someone in one of her romance novels after Doug Collins. Okay, that is kind of you, but I mean, come on. We can't talk about the issues in this race, so we're talking about the personality. And and Leffler needs to understand, and I think her team understands that she's got to get up to speed on that. And honestly, there there is a problem for Leffler in this, in that. The reason Leffler was chosen by Governor Kemp is to make inroads with suburban women. And it's real hard for her to make those inroads with suburban women when she's got to hold the conservative base from Collins. Now, she's got a little bit easier because there's not going to be a primary. So she's got a little bit easier. But that is a problem. Collins in the race keeps Leffler from making the inroads uh, for which she was picked to make. It's going to be a hard time for her to do that as she's got to hold conservatives in line, try to get conservatives in line. But interestingly enough, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution has some polling out. And again, I'm not hugely comfortable with the polling, but I do know how to make the adjustments in the polling to see whether or not it fleshes out. And it does. Leffler and Collins are tied on statewide name ID. Leffler and Collins are tied on popularity. Now, Leffler is doing a Bloomberg strategy. She is buying up massive amounts of airtime for her campaign. She's buying up massive amounts of time uh, for herself to, to be defined positively with voters. She's working on building her name ID. I think it is notable in the primary ad for Leffler at this moment, they've stopped with the Leffler voiceover and they've added some older Southern sounding gentleman to do her voiceover. Now, and, and, and uh, it's not Kelly Leffler opens her mouth and you see Kelly Leffler's lips moving and you hear a dude. No, that's not what I'm talking about. But you see the pictures of Kelly Leffler, but it's some guy saying Kelly Leffler is a champion for life and Kelly Leffler is a champion for the Second Amendment and Kelly Leffler is a champion for the president. And she stared down Mitt Romney and the Democrats and told them no on impeachment. Vote for Kelly Leffler in November. I Look. I got asked to do a voiceover for an ad for Leffler. I'm I'm totally happy to do a voiceover for an ad for Leffler. I'm going to support her. Uh, but but let's let's not let our support of candidates uh, misguide us in the reality of, of what's on the ground. And the reality on the ground is twofold. One, she does need to improve and look more comfortable in her own skin on camera. She does because she doesn't right now. And two, Collins is very good on the campaign trail. Collins is really good on the campaign trail, and he has some fired up conservative activists willing to help him. 
But all of this, and, and I was just having this interaction on, on social media with a buddy of mine who's been a longtime political consultant. All of this can't overshadow the fact that ground game actually matters. Ground game matters. You can't just run a bunch of advertisements. I mean, you can and see your polling go up, but ultimately those people aren't necessarily going to get out and vote for you. The, the, the rule in campaigns is you got to have people knock on doors and it doesn't matter whether you're running a local race, a statewide race, a national race, you got to get people to knock on doors. Now, why? The data shows that a person is more likely to vote for a candidate if someone has knocked on their door and asked them to support the candidate. And it's harder to do. So many people don't want to answer the door that they, they don't want you coming to their neighborhoods or they live in gated communities and you can't get in. And campaigns that put a lot of time and effort into making that happen are the successful campaigns. I know a campaign. I, I helped a campaign a couple of years ago uh, where a lot of the voters that needed to be persuaded were in a couple of gated communities up in uh, North Georgia County. And they found people in those gated communities who supported them and helped them give access to volunteers to go in with the families that live there and support the candidate and go door to door in their neighborhood. And you know that candidate won because it mattered that people in that neighborhood were willing to go door to door in that neighborhood and knock on doors and say, hey, we like this candidate. Please support this candidate. And at the end of the day, Leffler and Collins need to have people knocking on doors on their behalf, that they can't just do an ad campaign. Collins in particular needs to do it because Collins is not going to have the money that Leffler has for ads. Collins is going to have to go knock on doors. He's going to have to have volunteers knock on doors. He's got a conservative grassroots group that wants to help him. That gives him manpower. Leffler is going to have to respond with her own grassroots support, and she can rely to some degree on the governor's team because the governor's team is backing her. Uh, that gives her access to things like she should be using campaign sidekick. Uh, that's what the governor's campaign used to do their door-to-door -door efforts outside the suburbs. It was highly successful. It's a program Rick Scott and Ron DeSantis used in Florida. Full disclosure, I'm really good friends with the guy who runs Campaign Sidekick. If you're running for office, you should use Campaign Sidekick. Now, what is it? It's a program where you go in and you say, I want to knock on the doors of everyone who's a Second Amendment advocate in this area. And it, it can pull in... NRA membership, Field and Stream, people who've given money to, to Second Amendment groups, all that stuff, and people who vote. And then it'll do a walk map for you in order. So you can go through and say, okay, John Smith is going to be here. I'm going to skip this house and this house. I'm going to go to, to Bob Jones here. I'm going to knock on his door. I'm going to skip the, these three houses. I'm going to go to Jane Doe here. I'm going to knock on her door. And all I'm going to do is I'm going to talk to these people about the Second Amendment. And then the next day, you're going to come back through the neighborhood and you're going to talk to all the people who care about education. And you do this in Campaign Sidekick. It's, it's the application that does this. And, and it works. You go door to door. People who knock, knock on people who have someone knock on their door and have a positive exchange about a candidate are more likely, likely to vote for that candidate. If you have three door knocks, pay attention to this. This, this is important. If during a primary... You have you, you, the candidate and two other people knock on the doors of a household. That person in that household is 80% likely to vote for that candidate. You have the candidate and two people, two different times. So three visits, one with the candidate, two with other people, and you knock on the door of someone, that person is 80% likely to vote for that candidate. And the neutralization is when the other candidate and two people come. And then it takes that person off the table, perhaps, maybe, unless you've locked them in, if you move fast and you do it. 
You get them locked in for you, they're not going to go to the other side. 80% likely. And by the way, you would be stunned at the number of campaigns that don't do this. You would be stunned at the number of campaigns that don't go door to door. Or they wait until the very end and it's, it's a cursory lit drop. A lit drop is when they just hang a door flyer saying, hey, vote for vote for Joe Blow. As opposed to knock on the door and say, hey, I want to tell you about my candidate. He cares about your issues. If you do that, you get a campaign sidekick or a similar app and, and you do the door to door and you knock on the doors, you, it matters. And Leffler and Collins, if they're going to squabble over who loves Stacey Abrams the best, they would be better, better served by beginning their voter mobilization, by going door to door, by knocking on doors. Kelly Leffler needs to be out in South Georgia knocking on doors. She needs to show up on people's doorstep. It's hard work. She's got a put her hair up in a ponytail and knock. And Doug Collins needs to do the same thing. Forget about it. When she's out there, and, and I address this more to Leffler than Collins because Collins is such a natural gifted politician of this. When Leffler is in South Georgia, when she goes down to, to Bibb County, to the Rutland area in South Bibb County, where you got swamps and gators and, and you got flat neighborhoods and railroad tracks in South Bibb County and the way to Warner Robinson, you're knocking and it's hot and it's sweaty and the gnat line has creeped forward and you're swatting at the gnats while you're walking. That not only is humbling and builds character it brings out your natural personality and when that kelly leffler knocks on someone's door and is willing to say yeah it sucks but i'm out here to get your vote i've never done anything like this before but i'm really committed to this that's going to get her votes when she's honest sweaty and grimy on the campaign trail knocking on doors getting votes that counts and that's why people go with you and it's a way better resource and value add than each side saying, oh, look, I got a picture of the candidate with Stacey Abrams. Who cares? Do you know what? Stacey Abrams is a former elected official. She's not even in office anymore. It doesn't matter. What matters is getting out there and meeting the voters. Uh, it just, I, I, I got a, a text message from a friend who's listening to the show and, and <laughs> I won't read it all because it's, Basically, it's what would you advise the Leffler team to do because uh, she hasn't been impressive in commercials. I I actually I I feel bad about pointing that out, but I think we have to accept the painful truth uh, that she she comes across as very stiff in her commercials. I'll tell you what I would advise. One is to actually get out on the campaign trail and start knocking on doors. Uh, and because she's never done it before, she's never had to do it before. And there's something real world about having to, to put that sweat, sweat equity into your own campaign. You're actually out knocking on doors. Uh, you, you've got a walk list. You're going into neighborhoods, not in Atlanta. You're going down to South Georgia where people are a little more real. And I don't mean that disparagingly to people in Atlanta, just to, you know, in South Georgia, people don't make as much money in Atlanta. It's a slower pace. People are going to take a little more time, uh, to pay attention. Uh, the other thing I would say is, is in all honesty, I had a candidate one time who I ran for office. I might have mentioned this before. Um, had a candidate who ran for office, and they were not comfortable in their own skin. They were a very good candidate, but they just weren't comfortable doing stuff like that. And they weren't comfortable in their ads, and it came through. Everything was very scripted, very stilted. And finally, what we had to do is we had to sit with the candidate and just have conversation and engage the candidate and film the conversation. And the candidate opened up, really opened up in the conversation about life. And we just recorded the whole thing. And we took pieces of it and we were able to put it into commercial form. 
And it was it was way less scripted. It was way more honest. Uh, and the candidate was comfortable having the conversation after a while. And you had to do it for a while. I mean, we we, we filmed a very lengthy interview, and this was before digital too. Uh, so there was a there was a, a a recorder involved and swapping tapes. But after a while, the candidate just kind of it, it all kind of blended in, and we were able to have the conversations and 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 cut out the pieces for the, for a commercial from talking about their life story and talking about why they're running and talking about why it matters. Um, standing in front of the teleprompter, uh, and reading is a hard skill. I, and I say this as someone who's been on television and has had to use the, the, uh, the teleprompter on TV. And I've done it, uh, you know, we, when you're, when you're on the five on Fox and I've been a number of times, they make the, the, the guy in the middle read the teleprompter at a, at a certain point. And the first time I did, it was awkward as hell and you get comfortable to it. And I, I went out and practiced, uh, with a buddy of mine at Fox on reading the teleprompter to get a little more natural at it. And it takes some talent and some time to get it done. And you got to sit back just so far because you don't want to see the person's eyes moving across the screen, which looks unnatural and comes out particularly in 4k TV. Now that comes out even more. Uh, so you got to work at it and you got to sit with the candidate and just get the candidate to talk. Why are you doing this? And if the reason is just because you want the prestige, well, then get out. And I'm not directing that at Leffler. I'm directing that at candidates in general. Just get out. But if you're a candidate who really wants to be there for a reason, whether you're Leffler or Collins or Abrams or Kemp or or, or Duncan or, or anybody, you've got a reason you're there. Tell me that reason in your own words. And inevitably, that's how the candidate connects with the crowd. And that's what Leffler needs to do. Connect with the crowd by being in her own words. Hello there. The phone number, if you would like to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Thanks for joining me. I, I, I want to spend a little bit more time on stuff here in Georgia. It, it is actually rather relevant to everyone, but... Oh, and by the way, I should point out, Ed Tarver has jumped into the, the Leffler-Collins race. So you'll have Raphael Warnock, Ed Tarver, Kelly Leffler, uh, Matt Lieberman, uh, Doug Collins. That race continues to grow. It's exactly what the Democrats didn't want. The Democrats wanted the Republicans to divide the field and, and rally to Ralph Warnock, and that doesn't appear to be happening now. Lieberman continues to raise money, and, and now Ed Tarver getting into the race, a Democrat from DeKalb County. This, y'all, this, this bothers me greatly. This piece of legislation bothers me, bothers me, bothers me greatly. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was off. Uh, I was off, what, on on a Friday and on a Monday. They wouldn't let me come back to work. Maybe I was off on a Thursday, too. I don't know. But I was, I was out of work for a couple of days. Alan Sanders filled in for me because I was sick. And then my daughter got it, and now I'm worried my son's going to get it. And it was one of those, and it's a virus that's been going around and some of you I know have had it because y'all reached out to me and we're just a horrible, horrible sore throat. And I lost my voice. I, I could not talk. There were, I, I haven't lost my voice in you. The last time I lost my voice, Christy and I had just got married and I got a stomach bug and I threw up so much. Um, and it was so bad for so long and I'd lost my voice, uh, burned my throat up with stomach acid. And it was, it was really bad. Uh, and I hadn't lost my voice since I, I don't think I can't recall doing it, but just a couple of weeks ago, I, I completely lost my voice. It was terrible. Couldn't talk. 
And I had to go get the only thing I, I went to the doc in the box. They're like, it's a virus. It's not we're not going to put you on antibiotics. Uh, my doctor wound up putting me on antibiotics and steroids because he was afraid I was getting a sinus infection along the way. But uh, more info, too much information, I realized. But along the way, they said, go get something that has pseudoephedrine in it. Now, you can go buy over the counter at your drugstore uh, cold and sinus medicine that has phenylephedrine in it. And phenylephedrine is a fake drug. Phenylephedrine does not work. Now, phenylephedrine is psychosomatic. It, it is, it's a placebo. It doesn't actually work. And don't call me and tell me that it does work. It does not work. Uh, phenylephedrine is a crap piece of medicine. Uh, and the reason that uh, pharmacies or the reason drug manufacturers put it in, in cold and sinus medicine is because you now got to go to the drugstore and, and show them your driver's license and fill out a form, thanks to Congress, to get pseudoephedrine. And uh, some states are now allowing people buy, to buy pseudoephedrine over the counter, and it works. You go get Advil cold and sinus with pseudoephedrine, and that's what I had to do. I had to get a big box of it. You can only buy so much or you'll go to jail because they'll think you're a meth head. But it works. Pseudoephedrine works. Pseudofed works. It is, you got to go get the real Pseudofed. <laughs> Buddy of mine just sent me a text, get the real Sudafed, or I can't say what else he said. But yes, Sudafed, Advil, cold and sinus, Sudafed, anything with pseudoephedrine in it, it actually works. The problem is that pseudoephedrine is one of the derivatives from which meth is made. And people were going to wholesale stores like Sam's or Costco or wherever, allegedly, and buying it in bulk and using it to make meth. Guess what? They're still making meth. The reality is that people were not going to your local Kroger or your Publix or your CVS or your Walgreens and buying pseudoephedrine to make meth. They were not doing it. There's never been any evidence entered in the congressional record or the record of any state legislature saying that they were going to that, that people were doing it. There's zero evidence that anyone was going into the local Walgreens and buying up all the pseudoephedrine products to go make meth. Nobody was doing that. Hey, you know why no one's doing that? Because it's a big red flag that a hey, alert alert meth head meth head. Well, guess what? This is from Sarah Collis in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, a bill that would require customers to prove they are at least 18 before purchasing some over-the-counter cough suppressants like Vicks or NyQuil passed a Senate committee on Wednesday. Senate Bill 272, proposed by Senator Randy Robertson of Cotula, specifically targets the active ingredient dextromethropan fan dm more commonly referred to dm many stores already require customers to show identification proving they're an adult before purchasing cough medicine containing the drug while it's considered safe for adults in small quantities, Robertson said minors sometimes use larger amounts of it to get intoxicated. We've had some concerns about this for quite a while, the former sheriff's deputy says. In 2008, a study showed one in 10 American teenagers abused the drug to get high, making it more popular than cocaine or ecstasy. The bill offers relatively little in the way of penalties. The bill would make it illegal for minors to buy any product containing dextromethorphan 
ban, minors would be warned for a first offense and fined a maximum $150 for subsequent violations. It would also be illegal to sell any medicine containing the drug to a minor knowingly, and the punishment would carry a warning for the first offense and a maximum fine of $100 for subsequent offenses. If all you got to do is sell your driver's license, like buying beer and alcohol, okay, I guess. But can I ask the relevant question? Where the hell are the parents? Am I allowed to say it that way? I, I, I don't mean to offend anyone here. Where are the parents? Your kid is going to the drugstore to buy cough medicine to get high. To get drunk, basically. Where are the parents? I mean, it, it, is this, must the state continue to be the parent for ill-behaved children whose parents have given up on, on instructing them, raising them in, in the ways that they should be raised? Raise up a child in righteousness? Where, where, where are the parents in this? I, I just... And please understand, this is, yes, it annoys me to no end the rigmarole you got to go through to buy pseudoephedrine in this country. You should not have to do that. The Georgia legislature, if they wanted to do something righteous, they would be a state that exempts the public from doing that. But continuing to regulate drugs like this, so there's another story there, and it is a directly related story to this bunch of hooey. That they want to do, they 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 want to crack down uh, taxes and regulations on vaping. Parents and medical professionals urge state lawmakers Wednesday to pass a bill they say would discourage teens from vaping. While vape shop owners said the bill would hurt people who use their products to help them quit smoking cigarettes, more than a dozen people spoke at a House subcommittee hearing on HB 864. The bill, sponsored by Representative Bonnie Rich, would add a seven percent tax to the sale of e-cigarettes, nicotine vaporizers, and associated products, as well as require retailers to buy an annual license in order to sell them. The license would have a one-time cost of $250 and a $10 annual fee. The bill is one of several in the state legislature that aim to regulate vaping, a growing practice that's been touted as an alternative to smoking. Vaping has also been linked to multiple deaths in recent months. Unlike tobacco, there are no taxes on vaping besides state and local sales taxes, and there's no state law restricting purchasing by age. Bills in the House and Senate have been filed to increase the purchase age for both vape products and tobacco to 21. Vaping is far out past cigarettes and popularity among teenagers. According to the CDC, 28% of high school students reported using an e-cigarette or vape within 30 days of a 2019 survey. 6% of high schoolers reported smoking cigarettes at the same time period. You know why they're not smoking cigarettes, of course, is the taxes. But here's the thing. Um, Amy Sedgwick who's a nurse at Northside Hospital in Atlanta, said her 17-year-old son had experienced three lung collapses in six months after vaping frequently for a year. Lee Church, a Hiawassee doctor and representative of the Georgia Academy of Family Physicians, said the tax could be an additional deterrent to teens. Can I ask a cruel question, and it's not intended to be a cruel question? Why aren't you engaging with your child who is frequently vaping for a year? 
Now, my kids haven't gotten to that age yet. They're getting to that age, and I understand the hard-headedness of kids, and they can't be told they're wrong. But, you know, we, we talk about this stuff in our house at an early age. Like in my family, I mean, not, not to get super personal here, but I, I know in my family, several members of, of my family, not my immediate family, but my family have a history of addiction to alcohol primarily. And so we talk to our kids about that, that, that it runs in the family and you shouldn't do it. Yeah, I have a glass of bourbon or I'll have a beer in front of the kids. But talking to them about everything. Um, it uh, you, you got to engage with your kids on this stuff. And parents are outsourcing to the legislature to engage with their kids. It's, it's not an easy topic. And I get it. It's, it's not an easy topic. And your kids are a bunch of liars. They're sinners. And they don't want you to know they're out smoking with, the, with their friends. And one of the difficult things about vaping is that you're not going to smell it on them like a cigarette. But whether it's the, whether it's buying the, um, whether it is buying the cough medicine, whether it's going out and getting pseudoephedrine, whether it's going out and, and buying vape products and the like, there are so many people these days, so many who want to outsource raising their kids to the government. You cannot outsource raising your kids to the government or your kids are going to operate like the DMV. It's just not good. Um, it, it is a, it is a problem. Um, it, it is, it's, it's, willfully irresponsible by parents to outsource to the government and then then to say, well, but my kid can sneak behind my back and do it. Therefore, we need the government to stop my kid from sneaking behind my back and doing it. You know what your kid's going to do? Your kid's going to sneak behind your back and do it. The government's not going to stop him. You know, there's always the, the, the grown-up who's willing to engage with the kids and let them do it. And they'll root out that person. They'll sneak it. So you gotta you, you gotta live relationally with your kids. And, and again, my kids aren't to that age, and I'm I may be completely screwing up my kids. And and well, one day, you know, a, a buddy of mine said, never write a book on how to raise kids until your kids are out of the house and not in the state pen. That is, those are words to live by. I, I know a I, I know a pastor. He is one of the most famous pastors in the United States. He's one of the most famous pastors in the world right now. And he refuses to preach, teach, write, or speak on raising kids because he says he screwed up his kids and it was uh, the Holy Spirit himself who intervened to save his children, um, that, that he and his wife were terrible parents. They neglected their kids. He was so busy building his ministry, he failed to build a strong family. And it was it was God himself who intervened. And so he won't, he won't write about it. Raising kids is hard. I'm not going to write a book on raising kids. I wrote a book to my kids on things I want them to know if I kill over dead. Uh, I, I, I will not write a book on raising kids. And I can still screw up my kids. They're 14 and they're 11. They're still, they're still persuadable. They can still get into trouble. They, they could still pick up an, an addictive habit uh, without me knowing about it. I get it. But this desire to rush off to the government and get the government to, to, to do this, is, is, it's crazy. 
It is the the government's willingness to to protect you when the government can't do it well, and it, it makes our lives more difficult as as citizens because the government's so busy trying to raise your kids. You know, you become a kid as well. You, your kid may be going off buying pseudoephedrine to try to brew meth in your backyard and not blow your house up. So by God, none of us are allowed to do it anymore. We got to go stand in line at the local drugstore, wait for the pharmacist, show our driver's license, sign a bunch of paperwork, and hope like hell we haven't gone over on the state registry for the year so the cops don't show up and accuse us of making meth. Raise your children. Maybe spank your kid. (gasps) You're not allowed to say that anymore, are you? But this whole thing, I'm sorry, and I don't mean anything disparate. I really don't, and I know it comes across as as cold-hearted and all, but you've got a a 17-year-old whose lung collapsed three times in six months after vaping frequently for a year, and you want the state to stop your son? You want the state to raise taxes on a product to stop your son who did this for a year and in and, and three his lungs collapsed three times in six months. I'm pretty sure the government's not going to be the one to intervene there. It's going to be your God. And I don't have a problem raising taxes on vaping, frankly. I mean, if you got nicotine in the product, just like cigarettes, you want to deter people. But why aren't you just banning it? If it's to stop people from doing it, why ban it? I've never understood this, even with cigarettes. Cigarettes are bad. They cause lung cancer. My wife has lung cancer. We, our kids know they're, they're never going to vape. They're never going to have cigarettes because uh, it is genetic. It is in the family. They want to minimize the odds. They want to live healthy. They don't want to go through that. But there are a lot of people who, by God, uh, I'm, all my friends are doing it, so I'm going to be a, a, a steam out my ears and mouth butt monkey myself and, and look ridiculous everywhere and, and blow clouds of clouds of clouds out of my mouth and nostrils and look like an idiot doing it. Have people seen themselves vaping? They look like idiots doing it. But tax the hell out of it. Ban it. If you don't want them to, to pick up a ha- an addictive habit like cigarettes, you should ban cigarette smoking as well. If it's that bad, if it's caused that many social ills, ban it. We're all in this rush to decriminalize marijuana, and, and this, we don't even want to ban cigarettes that, that actually will give you cancer. Our priorities as a nation seem to be screwed up, but this this zeal by by advocacy groups, we're doing it for the children. You know, I was on city council making. We had an old guy on city council all the time, and it was uh, he he all the time was uh, we got to do X Y and Z for the children, always for the children, children. We got to save the children. We got to spend more money for the children. We we got to go bankrupt for the children. We got to fund new museums for the children, always for the children. Let the parents do stuff for the children. Leave the taxpayers alone. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. We got to go back to the national stage because this conversation broke out on CNBC this morning. Jim Cramer is an Obama supporting Democrat. And well, they had this exchange. Is he not like a genuine? Is he really a socialist or is he a communist? What is socialist about what he wants? Joe, isn't he more of a communist? He is. Well, I, oh, no, I'm not saying that. I don't, I don't but I, I, it's, it's a fine line, and it's authoritarianism either way because you just can't enforce it unless Jim, you put Jim, up we a gotta run, It's a we race to see who's the poor. <laughs> They're all up. We got to get it. Bail, 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 bail. We can't have this conversation. Uh, but seriously, so uh, Sanders wants a total government takeover of health care. He wants to get rid of private health care insurance. He wants to raise taxes on anyone making over $29,000 a year. Yeah, this is from the RNC, but it's true. 
He wants to eliminate drug companies. He wants a government takeover of energy production. He wants a federal job guarantee. He wants the Green New Deal. He wants abortion for population control. He honeymooned in the Soviet Union. He praised Fidel Castro. He defended uh, Nicolas Maduro. He's invited Marxists uh, to his rallies who call for the end of capitalism. I mean, my goodness, this was at a, a Bernie Sanders rally. We need to elect Bernie, and we need a new party of, by, and for working people. We need a powerful socialist movement to end all capitalist oppression and exploitation. Uh, okay. Um, okay, sure. Um, man, Bernie Sanders. Um, Bernie Sanders is just crazy. Um, B- Bernie Sanders is just, he's, he's so far to the left. He is... I, I mean, I, I just I, the fact that the Democrats are going there is amazing to me. And I, I just I'm 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 stunned by by Sanders and I'm stunned by the uh, Democrats recognition that Sanders is gaining traction and these other candidates unwillingness to step out of the way. And and I realize Elizabeth Warren isn't going to step out of the way because she's okay with Bernie Sanders. She Elizabeth Warren is okay with Sanders uh, out there doing this. She's okay with Bernie Sanders getting traction. It's the other candidates, the Klobuchar's, the Buttigieg's, the Biden's and the like who, who look at this. They see what happened to the Republicans in 2016. They got Bloomberg in there now and they're not like, wait, wait, wait. Some of us have to get out here to stop Sanders. No, they're, they're rushing on to Sanders. It's amazing.